You are about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. To my mind, there's no two things I identify as more quintessentially 1950s than cars and science fiction. In 1952, the highways of the Midwestern United States were home to two unidentified individuals known as Phantoms. One resembled something from a Misfits song or a Rob Zombie video, and the other was more nebulous. This is episode 49, The Phantoms of 52. Arthur Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. squalls of winter were still in the air around 3 a.m. one night in late February 1952. A trucker named Roy Fitzwater of Greensville, Pennsylvania was driving on Route 40 near the city of Vandalia, Ohio, when a car appeared in the oncoming lane of the highway. As Fitzwater described it in a newspaper article appearing on March 7th, it was spitting snow and freezing rain and very dark one night at three weeks ago. I dimmed my lights when a car approached. When the car got about 200 feet from me, its lights went out entirely. Then a little light flicked on inside, and I saw this thing. It was horrible looking. It scared me. I jammed him down my throttle and got out of there fast. Okay, well, maybe Fitzwater didn't really supply that useful of a description. But the same article went on to give a better description. See. Several other overnight truck drivers on Route 40 had also reported the same thing. In all instances, it was described as a man in a Halloween mask in a skeleton suit with bones outlined in luminous paint. In one of the other instances, the macabre motorist had been cornered by a couple truck drivers on the Englewood Dam, a broad causeway over the Stillwater River, but he, she, or it narrowly escaped them in fact, scraping one of the trucks. There had been at least five encounters with a mysterious figure by March 7th, according to Corporal William Harrell of the state police. We have a man under suspicion, and we may make an arrest, he said. But, of course, such was not to be. On March 15th, Sheriff J. Arthur Schumann of Clark County re- received a bizarre letter, postmarked from Springfield, and apparently written five days before, It was supposedly from the so-called Phantom that terrorized truck drivers on Route 40. The Phantom made oddly grandiose statements, stating that his car could go 135 miles an hour. It was fitted out with radar and sonar and some other equipment I don't know the name of, 
including an auto television screen so I can spot a patrol car three miles off. He was not one of those old-fashioned ghosts that go around scaring people with just ordinary masks and glowing lights. He attempted to arrange a rendezvous with a sheriff near Springfield, appropriately enough, at midnight, stating that the truckers he had previously appeared to are not my equals, he told the sheriff not to attempt to lay a trap for him. Don't form a roadblock. The game must be a chase, not a block. The letter was publicized in the media, and though 150 people joined the sheriff in waiting along the highway side, the Phantom did not make an appearance. Until recently, this had looked like nothing more serious than a grisly form of after-dark practical joking, Sheriff Schumann said a few days later. But by the close of last week, it had begun to look like the aberrations of a hot rodder with delusions of untouchability. By about a week later, the glowing figure had relocated to the area surrounding Youngstown. On March 12th, the Phantom's next appearance was made north of Yorkville, according to a report made to Yorkville Police Chief Roger Lalini. Louis B. Martell, a trucker from Paul Tuckett, Rhode Island, was driving on Route 7 near a small airfield when a car approached from the opposite direction. Then a figure jumped from the car. Glowing in the lights of the truck was a skeleton, topped by some sort of marks in the shape of a skull and crossbones. The skeleton danced. Martell departed. On March 20th, there was another encounter with a mysterious figure. This time, it was on Route 29, some distance north of the Hornet section of Route 40, and far from Yorkville. Brothers Rex and Tom Weaver were driving near McCartyville when they encountered the Phantom. A car behind them sped up to pass them, and then stopped in front of the Weaver's car to cut them off. We skidded to a stop and ran up to cuss out the crazy fool who was driving the car, Rex Weaver said later. When we got there, the darn thing actually began to fill up with green smoke. A man sat in the car, who according to Rex, was wearing a wild-looking striped suit. He moved the car from where he had it parked, and he began laughing like a maniac, then drove away in his car. A Coshocton steeplejack by the name of Mad Marshall Jacobs, known for attempting to revive the flagpole sitting fad, as well as for having married Yolanda Cosmar, atop a 176-foot-tall flagpole, having climbed various courthouses in Ohio either to raise money for charity or just for the hell of it, was seeking new thrills and determined to meet the Phantom motorist. He doesn't care where nor what hour of the night, it was reported. Jacobs had said that he, don't, he didn't believe in ghosts and that he thought the Phantom was just a practical joker. He claimed that on one occasion, he had been called by someone claiming to be the Phantom while in Cambridge, but that though he arranged to meet the motorist, he never showed. In the early morning hours of March 27th, four separate motorists near Wellsville, back in the West Virginia border area where Louis Martell saw the weird figure, called in reports to the police. Another man named Fred Henry said that his son had seen the bizarre figure driving on Route 30 north of East Liverpool. According to Henry, the car interestingly seemed to have British-style steering with a steering wheel on the right side. He said that the quote-unquote mechanized ghost was standing on the running boards of the car while driving it. Moans, screams, and shrieks, and his fanatical laugh emanated from the auto. The sighting was described in the Salem News, which cast a green glow in the black and night. 
A green fog enveloped the Phantom's car as he first appeared behind the youth's auto, and then in front of it. He was later seen near Lisbon, and then east of West Point. The Phantom chased one man into the city of Wellsville. One Wellsville police officer was quoted as saying, I'd like to catch him, just to find out what makes him tick. This might not have been the same Phantom in my opinion. In other articles, he is described as wearing a quote, bulky costume, and having a quote, monstrous head. This idea wasn't lost on police, who had also begun to think that there may be more than one as well. At around 10 o'clock the next night, Nancy Neal at the Lisbon Courthouse answered the telephone. On the other end was a man who said, This is the Phantom. Route 7 tonight. The same night, another phone call was received by a police officer in East Liverpool named Clyde Voso. In this call, a quote, thick-voiced man said, I'm the Phantom. How much would it be worth to let you catch me? However, Voso managed to trace that call to Chester, West Virginia, on the other side of the river, not surprisingly to a tavern patron named Elvie Starr. Floyd Lyons, the chief of the Chester police, said that Starr had admitted that he placed the call to Officer Voso, but that he hadn't called Lisbon. Starr was fined $5 by Chester Mayor De DeMar Miller, and then released. The Phantom did, however, appear on Route 7, as he had told Miss Neal, this time appearing to a motorist named Kenneth Page at about 2.30 a.m. He said that a man flagged him down from the roadside near Brookside. When he stepped into full view, Page knew that he wore a skeleton suit and swerved to avoid hitting him and ran into a ditch. The Phantom drove off, and Page became the first, and maybe only, individual to be injured as, an, as a result of the Phantom's annex. The next night, March 29th, another phone call was placed, this time to a taxi service in Lisbon, in which the sheriff of Columbiana County was asked to come to Route 7 if he wanted to play. In addition, calls were received stating that he would be on Route 45 and Route 14. Once more making good on his word, well, part of it anyway, that night a Eugene Holsinger said he saw a car approaching through a fog bank. It was driving slowly, with only its parking lights lit. He thought it might be the Phantom, but continued driving. Like the sighting made by the Henry boy, he said, it seemed to be some he said someone seemed to be standing on the running boards of the car. But in this case, he said, it seemed to be a woman. He felt she was aiding someone within with their navigation. The car followed Holsinger into Rogers proper, and I actually never said he was near the town of Rogers, but he was. A Zanesville movie theater attempted to lure the Phantom into the theater for a double billing of Charles Lawton's version of The Hunchback of Notre Dame and Cat People, but to no avail. With this flurry of crank calls and a sighting of what might have been the Phantom, the morbid motorist sped off into the highways of, well, he disappeared. On March 4th, 1952, or right after the outbreak of the sightings of the Phantom, a Columbus man named Alan S. Drake was shot on Route 40, found east of the Phantom's haunts, near Kirkersville. Drake was still alive and crawling on the ground when first found by truckers Anthony Griner and William Stoll around 2.30 a.m. Griner said, I thought it was a dog until I came alongside it and saw it was a man. Initially, the murder was thought to be the work of Herbert Miller, 
who had killed a drugstore owner named James Smith in Columbus. Drake's car was later found abandoned in Buckeye Lake Park by Mrs. Bessie Kinney. I haven't gone into any depth researching this, as it's only tangential to the story anyway. But eventually, an 18-year-old AWOL Marine from Huntington, West Virginia, named Lewis Allen Angel, was arrested for the crime, along with another former Marine named Harmon Cordray. He and Cordray had murdered Drake while hitchhiking. Angel was executed on January 23, 1953, and Cordray was acquitted. Interestingly, at approximately the same time, there was a quote-unquote phantom sniper in Huntington. The sniper never killed anyone, but he was fond of roaming around town, firing in lighted windows with a 22 caliber rifle, startling people and sometimes injuring them. In one instance, the gunman was seen shooting at streetlights. He was a young man, probably no more than 18. Whether the Phantom Sniper in this case could actually have been Angel is an interesting possibility. The time period had a few other famous gun-toting criminals as well. In 1949, Howard Unruh had shot numerous people in Camden, New Jersey. At much the same time as the Huntington Sniper and the 40 Phantom, another quote-unquote Phantom Sniper was shooting at women in Los Angeles. In that case, a young man named Evan Charles Thomas was eventually arrested for that series of crimes, and then later executed for the accidental murder of his first target. And also, the Phantom Killer, John Wesley Wable, shot several truckers on Route 30 in western Pennsylvania. I think it's pretty clear that the Phantom was a person in a suit. I don't think anyone could really see it as likely that anything supernatural was at work here. I have no idea what the person's motive was, or even if there was really any sort of motive at all. I place it into the same category as people in the past, dressing as a ghost and chasing people through darkened streets, or people in the modern day, dressing like clowns and basically acting like creeps. Really, the murder of Alan Drake has nothing to do with the Phantom, most likely, and I really only mentioned it because of context. After all, it was during the appearances of the Phantom and in roughly the same area. Soon after the 40 Phantom disappeared, however, another Phantom sniper roamed the highways of Illinois. But that story might be a bit more, or less, than it at first appears. I'll take a break here to run a few promos. Then I'll be back shortly with a second story. Hey, did you know that in the original Bloody Mary ritual, you had to walk backwards up a flight of stairs? Oh really? No, I didn't know that. Yeah, and the purpose was to catch a glimpse of your future husband's face. Really? I wish I could find my future husband that easily. Honestly, all I really want to do now is drink a Bloody Mary. Well, how about we go make some Bloody Marys while you tell me more fun facts about Bloody Mary? Join us every week at Booze and Spirits, where we make our favorite drinks and tell each other our favorite paranormal stories. Find us under Booze and Spirits on Spotify, Google Play, iTunes, and Podbean. And follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Booze and Spirits. Good evening, ma'am. Hey, y'all. What can I do you for? Can I have a glass of Chardonnay? I'm sorry, darling. We don't serve that here. Any Merlot? I'm pretty sure you don't want these feet going nowhere near them grapes. Alrighty, how about a craft beer? Oh yeah, we got plenty of craft beer. Which one you want? No, not craft beer. 
craft beer. Oh, no, hell no. I'm, I'm pretty sure the bar down the street serves that. Okay, well, what do you serve? I'm glad you asked. Welcome to the Backwoods Barcast. We serve up moonshine, cheap beer, bottom shelf liquor, and stories even harder to swallow. Join Nick and Brittany and the janitor Steven as we discuss southeastern mysteries and mayhem, including but not limited to UFOs, true crime, the paranormal, and much more. So knock four times, grab a stool, let the bar talk commence, and as always, drink more beer. The story of the Blue Phantom begins with a very real crime. On the evening of May 28, 1952, in St. Louis, Missouri, an employee of Union Electric named Raymond C. Rock was shot as he left a laundromat in the vicinity of 15th and Pine Streets. He slumped to the sidewalk as a car passed, the initial report said, and then his daughter Patricia heard a report like a backfire. Rock had been shot with a 38 caliber bullet. A 16-year-old boy named Thallus Cooks said that he might have accidentally shot Rock as he was firing a gun in a nearby alleyway around the same time. Two months later, however, the crime was still unsolved, so Cooks' involvement was either not definitively proven or was actually disproven. Shortly afterward, though, a man named Kuchik said he was fired upon by someone in a large blue car as he was on Route 66, south of Lincoln, Illinois. On May 29th, the gunman in the blue car struck again, this time firing at the automobile of William Airthizel, about 18 miles north of Joliet. Airthizel said the car in this instance was a blue 1950 Ford sedan. Another man in the same area named Daniel Shonar also said that a man in a blue car had also fired at him, the bullet smashing through the front vent window and causing Shonar to duck his head. Nothing more was heard from the mystery sniper for several days. On June 2nd, an Edward Smith was driving on Route 48 near the St. Louis Bridge in Decatur. He said that something struck his car, and he slowed down. In his rearview mirror, he saw a man running from the bushes into a blue car and speeding away. The 38 caliber bullet had hit Smith's rear window. Sheriff David Peters, however, said only that it may have been a bullet. The only description of the shooter offered by Smith was that he had on a white shirt with rolled up sleeves, which obviously isn't really very helpful. The next day, state police had set up checkpoints all throughout the area of Springfield, Lincoln, Decatur, Joliet, and Plainfield, stopping all blue cars driven by single motorists. Raymond Ziegler said his, shot, his car was shot at near Litchfield on June 6th. The same day, the sniper also shot at the back at the car of Wilbur Holbrook as he was driving on Route 128 near Dalton City. The newspaper described the early morning attack as follows. A man in the car pulled up beside him several times and dropped back. The fourth time, Mr. Holbrook said, he saw a gun in the other driver's hand. Mr. Holbrook said that he swerved his car, forcing the other car off the road as the driver fired a shot. The assailant was a long-nosed man in a gray shirt, wearing a chauffeur's cap and driving a 1942 Chevrolet. A third motorist, George M. Cushing, was driving 10 miles north of Bloomington when he was shot at from a blue car containing two men. 
The bullet they fired shattered his windshield, and Cushing's arm was cut up by the glass. At the Argonne National Laboratory, a Department of Energy installation located on Route 66 near Darien, a motorist named Raymond Wise also claimed to have been shot at. I saw something sticking out of the window of his car as he approached, Wise said, but I didn't know it was a gun until it was too late. On June 7th, a high school teacher and his wife, the teacher withholding his name for authentic reasons, whatever the heck that means, were shot at by a dark-collared automobile near Belleville. They said as the car passed them, they saw a muzzle flash and heard the bullet passing over the car. The state police began searching in earnest. They still maintained the checkpoints all along Route 66, and even fielded an airplane to search the highways for the assailants' cars. Despite the search, another incident was reported. A man named William Chittenden said that an automobile with two men fired three shots at him as he drove on Route 96 near Hamilton. None of the bullets seemed to have struck the car, however. On June 9th, then, no less than four people claimed to have been attacked. A man named Frank Pazdiora said that his side window was broken by gunshots at Volo, north of Chicago. A B. Burracker said that he met with a quote-unquote blue phantom on the roads near Lexington. Burracker said that the sniper's car carried three people. Ken Erickson reported being shot at near Braidwood, and finally Eugene Sullivan and his wife said that while driving along Lerner Road south of Mattoon, an arm reached from a dark-collared car parked on the roadside and pointed a gun at him. On June 10th, a policeman named Lawrence Brown was the target of two gunshots, neither of which hit, in the town of Marengo in the, in the Chicago suburbs. He pursued the gunman at 90 miles per hour in the direction of Elgin when it disappeared. William Moffat was the recipient of another attack near Springfield. The panic had now spread beyond Illinois, when a woman from Sullivan, Indiana, said that a car with Illinois plates shot at her. A Charles Meyer of the same place said he was also shot at. None of these bullets either found their marks, however. A man named Angelo Bovard was arrested in Blue Island, driving a dark car with a firearm. However, he was released when it was found that his gun had not been fired recently. Two women named Harriet Kirkpatrick and Vera Gardner reported another encounter just east of Harvard on June 12th. Then on June 14th, a man named Harry Taintor was fired upon on the sniper's old haunts, Route 66 near Joliet. A man in a car pulled alongside Taintor and, and pointed a pistol out his window, firing point-blank, but causing no bullet holes or marks on Taintor's car. The same day, E.J. Bosley was driving on Route 23 between Streeter and Ottawa, when he heard a sound similar to a pistol shot and found a hole in the left front window. In contrast to this, though, an apparent bullet hole appeared in the window of James Horsley's automobile when he was driving near Rockford, but he heard no gunshot. Sergeant John Asher of the Chicago Crime Lab examined the marks on Horsley's car and said he could find no evidence that a bullet had struck him. Two National Guardsmen named John Kleschuk and Robert Black said a passing auto fired at them in downtown Chicago. The passing auto with three men riding within flashed its headlights at them, and then the two soldiers saw a muzzle flash and heard a shot. And then on June 16th, Henry Melling reported that his car had been fired upon near Ottawa, 
with a trucker claiming to be fired upon twice at Clinton. As the bullet in this case was reported to have been a 22, this was apparently confirmed as a gunshot. Two more, instant, two more incidents were reported on June 19th, after which the Blue Phantom vanished. First, Mr. and Mrs. Harold Francis reported being shot at from a Blue Ford, parked near a lumberyard in Decatur. Once again, no bullet holes were found. The last incident was reported by a man named Fred Manley in the roads near Ashmore. He claimed he was fired at around 7.30 that evening in an incident which is so utterly unlike any of the previous ones that it's nearly laughable. He claimed that a man driving a yellow Chevrolet panel truck leveled a shotgun at him and blasted the car twice, and, once again, mysteriously failed to hit it. As is the case in most instances of a hysteria, there were a number of humorous incidents of mistaken identity. Clayton Jennings was near Aurora when he said he saw a figure pointing a pistol at him from the back seat of a car driven by a woman, but it was later found to be a 15-year-old boy with a toy gun. In another, in, in another case of phantom sniper-induced horseplay, bicyclists flanked a car near, driving near Fairview Park in Decatur, firing water pistols in the window. On June 13th, Henry Stutes was driving near Springfield when two teenagers in a bluish-green car made the car backfire and then tossed a rock at him. And similarly to the 40 Phantom, the Blue Phantom was utilized in advertising campaigns. A Decatur jewelry store run by Ben Miller ran an ad in the Decatur Daily Review on June 18th, stating that, The Blue Phantom is still out gunning. Don't know who he's gunning for, but we're gunning for you before imploring people to come in and see their low-priced diamond rings. The Blue Phantom, apparently, either intended not to kill, or had the aid of a stormtrooper and a singular inability to hit much of anything. However, there was another possibility, one which had come about nearly a week before. By June 11th or 12th, the state police were beginning to get cynical about the Phantom Sniper. Chief Thomas J. O'Donnell said of the stories, it could be true, and we are continuing our intense investigation of these reports. But frankly, I doubt. He thought that nearly all the supposed attacks were instances either of rocks hitting cars or of firecrackers being set off. We have not relaxed our search and are investigating every case, but we are not convinced there is a phantom gunman or that any shots were fired in most of the shooting incidents reported. We have yet to find anyone who saw a gun or who could give anything definite about the description of the sniper. On the other hand, we have a maze of vague and conflicting information that does not add up to the conclusion that one gunman is causing all these reports. Only one instance, he added, displayed any definitive evidence of a bullet, which that was, he didn't specify. Most evidence at this point, it was pointed out, consisted of fender dents, hood creases, and windshield cracks. It was even said in the newspapers at the time that it is possible, or even probable, that an automobile traveling on an Illinois highway was struck by a bullet fired either accidentally or by design. Since then, a lot of people have been getting into the act, and they could include pranksters who pretended to do the shooting or headline hunters who have posed as targets of the mysterious gunman. In March 1954, a similar panic swept Bellingham, Washington, as windshields throughout the city were pitted and damaged, 
supposedly by another quote-unquote phantom gunman with a BB gun or some other sort of pellet gun. Later, the epidemic was attributed to nuclear fallout, although it was most likely due to vandalism. An examination of another... An examination of another wave of supposed gunmen, one which swept Escher, England at approximately the same time as the Blue Phantom Panic, Robert Bartholomew makes a statement which is relevant to the Illinois Panic as well. Many of the drivers reporting attacks were locals, who were well aware of the sniper rumors and more likely to contact the police than passing motorists who might attribute such an incident to loose stones. And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description, and photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. I also now have a Patreon at patreon.com slash forgdark. That's F-O-R-G-D-A-R-K. Until next time, this is Andrew, signing off. Discover more shows like this one at StraightUpStrange.com.